Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Man, my timing's off. Ugh. What am I going to do? <laughs> it is Tuesday, February 1st, 2011. I am bro- broadcasting from Icebound, Indiana. Oh, Man, I've never really been in an ice storm before. These things are not good. Yeah, I'll have more details here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result. Uh, well, we need to do the work of comparing what people are saying and assessing properly what uh, whether the person is just uh, erring, whether they're apostate, whether they're a heretic, whether they're a Christian brother who's uh, well, you know, not quite with it biblically. Maybe they're just slightly uninformed. You gotta, yeah. Listen, yeah. When it comes to discernment, it takes a little bit of time to to properly diagnose things. But uh, so as a result of it, yeah, yeah. You, 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 there's a saying out there, and the saying is is that it seems like error has uh, circled the globe four times before truth ever gets its boots on. And, uh, you know, I, it's funny. I, I used to think about that and go, well, then the solution is is that the truth needs to get its boots on quicker and get out there and, ch- yeah, no, I um, I, I think there's a reason for that. And uh, I was um, emailing a friend of mine in Great Britain and, uh, and a listener to Fighting for the Faith and we uh, kind of talking about the, the Frank Turk thing. And uh, there's a bit of controversy about uh, having Frank Turk on Fighting for the Faith uh, and uh, covering it the way I did. But the reality is is this, and that is is that I think there's a lot of people who want to make quick snap judgments uh, about myself or Frank Turk or whatever. But the reality is this, is that Frank Turk is a man who is an author at the uh, at the Pyromaniacs blog. He has been for several years. He was handpicked to uh, be one of the uh, contributors at the Pyromaniacs bo- blog by Phil Johnson, who uh, uh, works at uh, Grace to You and works with John MacArthur and is theologically no slouch. And, uh, and Frank Turk has a long history of uh, confronting errors, of... Uh, of you know basically defending the historic christian faith and and standing up for the truth and 
and uh, speaking out against some of the distortions that are taking place in uh, Christianity. As a result of that, all of that has to come into play as we evaluate uh, the concerns that Frank Turk brought up. And so, you know, it's funny. I've been uh, watching some of the uh, conversations uh, take place regarding my interview yesterday with Frank Turk. And even I have uh, something I want to chime in about. Uh, there's something that Frank Turk said that, that makes me want to circle back. And uh, not, I'm not going to offer a full-blown, uh, uh, you, know, di- you know, diagnostic where I go back and, and uh, do a post-mortem on my, uh, my interview with Frank Turk. But there's something I did want to go back and listen to in his uh, in something in statements that he made, and uh, even in something that I didn't you know in the, at the moment I was doing the interview didn't really react to, and uh, and uh, and and so it, it, I wanted to go back and do a little bit of clarifying work, and uh, do so by way of going back and looking at what the Lutheran confessions say about three things: good works, law and gospel. In the third use of the law, and there is a there is a section in the epitome of the um, uh, of the formula of Concord. If you're if you're familiar with the Lutheran confessions, so this is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of confessions, and uh, and that is is that confessions give us time tested, time tested, and battle hardened, if you would. Uh, uh, interpretations and summaries of what the scriptures teach. One of the things that I think is really a, a, a bad thing in in uh, American uh, evangelicalism, and I, you know, and I can't really speak to evangelicalism or Christianity as it exists outside of the United States. I don't have a lot of say in that. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with that. So those of you who are listeners in uh, in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Singapore. Uh, those of you who are listening in the Mediterranean, th- you know, uh, those of you who are listening in Great Britain or in the Netherlands, uh, you know, I, 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 I have to confess, I don't know uh, the state of Christianity in your neck of the woods, except for what you uh, you email me and uh, and uh, you know what you what you send to me as far as you know things to review along those lines. So as a result of it, I you know, I, I know I'm speaking. I may be speaking to an American phenomena here. I suspect though that in Australia and New Zealand, the American phenomenon is is uh, what's uh, happening in in that neck of the woods. I don't know what's happening for sure in uh, in. Um, Great Britain. Although I had a, con- a brief conversation with Pastor Charmley uh, via Skype over the weekend, and uh, he was explaining to me at least uh, some of the uh, challenges that he faces as a pastor of a congregation, it, kind of in one of the more downtown in, in the in the more city districts, if you would, there in uh, in Hanley and Stoke on Trent. Anyway, coming back to the point that I was trying to make, and that is this: is that here in the United States, there in the non-confessional churches. Okay, um, there is there seems to be psychologically a disconnect with the entire history of Christianity uh, that doesn't seem to exist in uh, congregations that value creeds and confessions. And uh, as somebody who is a, a Lutheran, one of the things I really value is the fact that uh, the the Lutheran confessions help me to see the continuity of Christianity across the millennia. 
not it, not as something unique, uh, some unique experience in in uh, in the in, in America, but that I see myself in the flow of historic Christianity, or if you would, Catholicism with a small C. I know that the, there's a you know when people hear the word Catholicism, then immediately there's a Hah! you know kind of response, and it still happens to me too. But I've been training myself more and more to see myself as an evangelical Catholic. And that's with a small scene. I'm not a Roman Catholic, I, and what I mean by that is, is that I do not believe the um, the power grab and the errors uh, that have been that have taken place under the uh, the Bishop of Rome, who is AKA known as the Pope. No, I, I think historically you can look and, and see that there's been something terribly wrong that has been done to Christianity in the name of Christianity, uh, by the Bishop of Rome. And I am not a Roman Catholic. I am an evangelical Catholic. And and what I mean by that is, is that I can look across Christian history. I can look backwards through each century, going back to the first century into the New Testament apostolic documents into the new into the apostolic era and see that there is an unbroken continuity in historic Christianity which also came to be known early on as the Catholic faith it meaning universal faith it wasn't something that was tied to a particular region and uh, as, so as a result of it you know I don't feel disconnected from history I feel really much a part of it and so um this uh, the uh, the Frank uh, some of the discussion that's been taking place regarding Frank Turk kind of reminds me of the fact that uh, you know that uh, that in America there is a disconnect in some senses from historic Christianity and uh, it, and it's not just a disconnect from it in in when I was an uh, an evangelical. And what I mean by that term is, you know, basically your your grassroots non-denom, or in my case, I was a I was a I was a Nazarene, but you know that's kind of in the the main flow of uh, you know uh, popular American Christianity. Um, there, there, I hate to say it; it's almost like a chronological snobbery. You look at the ancient church, and you know, say the writings of the church fathers and stuff like that, almost with an uh, an air of suspicion. You look at the writings of the ancient church, almost with a sense of superiority over them. Oh yeah, yeah, those guys. Oh yeah, they they you know they had these weird ideas about baptism and uh, and the Lord's Supper, and uh, and uh, as a result of it, we know better now. You know, no, that's not how I look at it anymore, and uh, and so as a result of it. Uh, you know, I think the confessions, especially the, the the confessions coming out of the Reformation, which were forged in heated battle that people lost their lives over, that in many senses roll up into them the uh, the confessions of the Catholic faith from the early days, you know, the ecumenical creeds, the uh, Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, these are things that uh, we should not dis- be despising, but rather embracing. And uh, so looking at the confessions, I, I, it always amazes me that, um, that how the confessions over and again hammered all this stuff out, and just going back to them, going back to what these Christians who really risked their lives to write these documents what they how they wrestled with the text what what conclusions they came to 
and how those uh, how really it's a faithful handling of God's word. It's over, it, it really behooves us to go back to them. So I'm going to take a quick look at something that Frank Turk said during my interview with him that I want to clean up, not by giving my own opinion, but by going into the epitome of the formula of Concord and uh, look at what the epitome of the formula of Concord says regarding good works, law and gospel, and uh, and the third use of the law. It's a short little section from the epitome, but worth passing along. And then... Um, what I'll do is, uh, let's see here. Let me, where my program notes? Here they are. Sorry about that. And uh, then what I want to do is I want to uh, read a um, a recent uh, op-ed piece r- written by Tulian Tavidjian um, entitled Two Ways to Realize Radical Obedience. And this is kind of him weighing in on the, uh, on the antinomian charge uh, leveled against uh, Mike Horton by, um, uh, by Jason Hood. And I think Tulane does a decent job, worth worth passing along. We'll have a little bit of fun at the end of this hour. We're going to listen to uh, the most recent video posted by Patricia King entitled, Who Are You Anyway? Apparently I have no idea who I am. And, uh, and then in the second hour, we're going to do another good sermon review. I owe you one more good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And so we're going to be listening to a Pastor Charmley sermon on First uh, Samuel chapter 22, entitled The Messiah and the Tyrant. The Messiah and the Tyrant. A, a fantastic sermon worth passing along, and that'll take up the balance of our program today. So with the, that, that, let's dive into the program proper. And what I want to do here is I want to play for you a short audio uh, snippet, f- soundbite, if you would, from my interview with uh, Frank Turk. And the topic that's uh, being discussed uh, has to do with the gospel. And I want you to listen carefully to uh, some of the phraseology that uh, Frank Turk uses in the soundbite uh, regarding what he thinks the Christian church needs to do. And and then what I'm going to do is gonna I'm going to basically offer a corrective to the language that he uses, not based in my opinion, again, based upon uh, what men far smarter than me have hammered out a long time ago and risked their lives to hammer out in the epitome of the formula of Concord. But uh, here is uh, uh, just a brief snippet from my uh, interview with uh, Frank Turk. Here we go. Yeah. What, what if we did the things that, you know, and, and here we go. Here's where we're going to blow up a little. What if we did the things the gospel said to do? Okay, did you hear that? What if we do the things that the gospel said to do? Now, I didn't respond in real time. I, let's hear a little bit more of what he says uh, about this. Okay, such as? <laughs> Love one another. <laughs> oh, you know? pray, pray for another. people. Pray for our enemies. <laughs> pray for our enemies. What if we read Acts 2 and we believed, wow, that's what the church is supposed to look like? Okay, now, got to be real careful here. Okay, it, it, I don't want to sound like I'm nitpicking or I'm, I'm straining at gnats. I'm not. And I, I think this is kind of, this is where... I think the real contra- what about at least uh, a big part of the controversy exists with uh, Frank Turk because he initially, when you read his open letter, he takes issue with the fact that uh, Michael Horton and the gang want to, they don't want to talk about the gospel in such a way that the gospel demands things because they see that as a confusion of law and gospel. The gospel is a proclamation of what Christ has done for us, and that there are logical, you know, there there's biblical fruit that spring from that, and those consequences, that fruit is not the gospel, it's the result of the gospel. And so when you hear, uh, when you hear Frank Turk talking about, 
you know, why don't we do the things that the gospel tells us to do? To many of you who understand a law gospel distinction, you're immediately going, wait a second here. Uh, that, that sounds like a confusion of law and gospel. And if, you, if that's what you think, actually you're you're in good company to think that. Now, so here's what I want to do. I Because, I, again, I think this shows the value of good confessional documents because they really help give us a roadmap to understand these types of controversies. And the thing is, is that what Frank Turk brought up in his open letter to Michael Horton is not anything new. It's it really is not. It it isn't. What Frank Turk brought up is a perennial issue that the church constantly has to be addressing over and over and over again. And these types of controversies, in fact, this exact controversy, almost in, you know, in its exact phrasing, has been fought uh, 500 years ago in the Reformation and has been fought in other centuries as well under different forms and guises. And so what I'm going to read to you is, uh, if you're familiar with the Formula of Concord, this uh, the Formula of Concord is a part of the Lutheran uh, Confessions. And uh, there's an epitome, and then there's a solid declaration. So it's kind of in two parts, and they deal with the same things uh, with different, with varying degrees of depth. And so what I'm going to be reading from is the epitome of the formula of Concord, and this is beginning in Article 4, Concerning Good Works. And, you know, this goes back to, I think, in the 1570s, I mean, when this, this, this uh, yeah, I may be wrong on the date, but it, it's it's the latter part of the 16th century. Uh, when these controversies came to a fore, because as the Reformation unfolds, you got to understand that Martin Luther he kind of gives rough cut categories, and he knew that those who would come after him would tighten things down and fine tune a lot of this theologically. And so, uh, it's it, 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 Luther was a, in a sense a trailblazer, and it was up to the guys who followed him to lay. You know, he would blaze the trail with his machete. But it was up to the guys who followed him to actually lay down the pavement. is is probably a good way of looking at it. And so these are the guys who uh, who laid down a lot of the pavement and did some of the fine tuning, and they ran into a lot of the same controversies. You know, the question comes up: How should we then live if we understand law and gospel? How then is sanctification preached to a Christian? How do we view good works? What's the proper look at the third use of the law? And so in this short section, it's really not that long at all. This is all hammered out. And uh, let's, so let's look back. Let's go back four, uh, 460 years and look at how this is done. Here we go. Uh, Article 4, Concerning Good Works, the chief question in the controversy over good works. Regarding the teaching on good works, two controversies arose in some churches. First, some theologians split over the following expressions. The first party wrote, quote, Good works are necessary for salvation. It is impossible to be saved without good works, and no one has ever been saved without good works. Against this position, the other party wrote, good works are harmful to salvation. Yikes. It doesn't sound like either of them got it right. So later, a split occurred among some theologians over the two words, necessary 
and free. One party argued that the word necessary should not be used in regard to new obedience, which does not flow from necessity and compulsion, but rather from a spontaneous spirit. The other party retained the word necessary because such obedience is not subject to our discretion, but rather reborn uh, but rather, reborn human beings are bound to render such obedience. From this semantic argument, a further controversy developed over the substance of the matter when one party argued that the law should not be preached at all among Christians, but people should be admonished to do good works only on the basis of the Holy Gospel. The other party contradicted this position. So that that kind of lays out the idea. So here you got law and gospel being taught in being you know this this distinctive being clearly regained uh, in the Augsburg Confession in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and then you got two churches, you know you got some church uh, two church groups that are split and divided, and they're fighting in such a way as to you know how to properly understand good works, and they've come to two different uh, positions. And let's look at how then this got resolved. The pure teaching of the Christian uh, churches concerning this controversy, this is the affirmative thesis, as a thoroughgoing explanation and disposition of this dispute, it is our teaching, faith, and confession that, one, good works follow from true faith, when it is not a dead faith but a living faith, as certainly and without doubt as fruit come from a good tree. Let me read that again. Good works follow from true faith when it is not a dead faith but a living faith, as certainly and without doubt as fruit comes from a good tree. We also believe, teach, and confess that at the same time good works must be completely excluded from any questions of salvation. Mm -hmm. We believe, teach, and confess that at the same time, good works must be completely excluded from any questions of salvation, as well as from the article on justification before God, as the apostle testifies in clear terms, quote, so also David declares that salvation pertains to that person alone to whom God reckons righteous apart from works, saying, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And also in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Three, we also believe, teach, and confess that all people, particularly those who have been reborn and renewed through the Holy Spirit, are obligated to do good works. In this sense, the words necessary, should, and must are used correctly in Christian fashion, also in regard to the reborn. In no way is such use contrary to the pattern of sound words and speech. Five, of course the words necessitas, necessary, necessity, and necessary are not to be understood as being compulsory when they are applied to somebody who is reborn, but only as the required obedience which they perform out of a spontaneous spirit, not because of the compulsion or coercion of the law, because they are no longer under the law, but they are under grace, Romans 6.14. 
Six, accordingly, we also believe, teach, and confess that when it is said that the reborn do good works from a free spirit, that is not to be understood as if it were up to the discretion of the reborn human beings to do good or to not to do good as they wish, and that they would nevertheless retain their faith even as they deliberately persist in sin. This, of course, seven. This seven, this, of course, not to be understood in any other way then as the Lord and his apostles themselves explain it, that is regarding the liberated spirit, which acts not out of fear of punishment like a slave, but out of the love of righteousness as children. See Romans chapter 8, verse 15. However, in the elect, in the elect children of God, this spontaneity is not perfect, but is encumbered with great weakness, as St. Paul complains about himself in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and Galatians 5, verse 17. Of course, because of Christ, the Lord does not reckon this weakness against his elect as it is written, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. We also believe, teach, and confess that, that not our works, but only God's Spirit working through faith preserves faith and salvation in us. Good works are a testimony of his presence and a testimony of his indwelling. Now, the negative thesis, false and contrary teachings. Accordingly, we reject and condemn the following manner of speaking when it is taught and written that good works are necessary for salvation, or that no one has ever been saved without good works, or that it is impossible to be be saved without good works. We also reject and condemn the bald expression that good works are harmful to salvation, as offensive and harmful to Christian discipline. For particularly in these last times, it is no less necessary to admonish the people to Christian discipline and to good works, and to remind them how necessary it is that they practice good works as a demonstration of their faith and their gratitude to God, then it is to admonish them that works not be mingled with the article on justification. For people can be damned by an Epicurean delusion about faith just as much as by papistic, pharisaic trust in their own works and merits. We also reject and condemn the teaching that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are not lost through intentional sin, but that the saints and elect retain the Holy Spirit even when they fall into adultery and other sins and then persist in them. This is kind of the Lutheran doctrine, by the way, of mortal sin. It has a persistence in, in, uh, in blatant, uh, unrepentant sin. Okay, article number five, concerning law and gospel. The chief question in this dispute, whether the preaching of the Holy Gospel is really not only a preaching of grace, which proclaims the forgiveness of sins, but also a preaching of repentance and rebuke, which condemns unbelief, something uh, condemned not in the law, but only by the gospel. The pure teaching, this is the affirmative thesis, the pure teaching of God's Word. We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between law and gospel is to be preserved with great diligence in the church and as an especially glorious light through which the word of God, in accord with Paul's admonition, is properly divided. We believe, teach, and confess that the law is, strictly speaking, a divine teaching which gives instruction regarding what is right and God-pleasing and condemns everything that is sin and contrary to God's will. Therefore, everything that condemns sin is and belongs to the proclamation of the law. However, the gospel is, strictly speaking, the kind of teaching that reveals 
what the human being who has not kept the law and has been condemned by it should believe that Christ has atoned and paid for all of his sins and apart from any human merit has obtained and won for the people the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness which avails before God, and eternal life. By the way, the righteousness which avails before God it comes from Luther's Bible, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Continuing, however, because the word gospel is not used in just one sense in the Holy Scripture, the reason this dispute arose in the first place, we believe, teach, and confess that when the word gospel is used for the entire teaching of Christ, which he presented in his ministry, as did his apostles in theirs, it is used in this sense in Mark 1.15, Acts 20.24, then then it is correct to say or to write that the gospel is a proclamation of both repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, this this section right here in the epitome of the Augsburg Confession is important, uh, uh, Augsburg Confession, but formula of Concord. This section is important, and the reason being is because, remember what Frank Turk said, we need to do what the gospel tells us to do. Now, that leads to the question, in what sense is he using the word gospel there? Okay. I think Frank Turk was using a gospel in a broader sense. I could say, the gospel commands me to love my neighbor. And you go, well, no, no, that's the law. And I go, oh, wait, what I mean by that is, is that, let's say, it's the gospel of Matthew. The gospel of Matthew tells me I need to obey God's law. And you go, ah, oh, okay, so that's how you're using the word gospel. I, I think that was what was going on with Frank. It may not be, but I'm going to give him a generous interpretation there. And, uh, you know, because in a, in a real sense, you can make the claim, well, the gospel tells me certain things I'm supposed to do. You're right. You know, and by that, I mean the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke or the gospel of John. But in general, the gospel itself is the proclamation of the good news. And there are certain fruits that come about as a result of the proclamation of that gospel that are separate and distinct from it. And so when Frank used that phrase, it, he he was muddying the water a little bit, and I and and I'm going back through what the confessions say here because it helps us understand that the term gospel in the Bible isn't always used in the same sense. In fact, there's a couple of passages in the Bible in the New Testament where it, it talks about those who are condemned for not quote obeying the gospel, and so you have to understand what the, those senses mean. So we continue. Uh, so when, however, law and gospel are placed in contrast to each other, as when Moses himself is spoken of as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel, we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a proclamation of repentance or retribution, but is strictly speaking nothing else than a proclamation of comfort and a joyous message which does not rebuke or terrify, but comforts consciences against the terror of the law directs them solely to Christ's merit, and lifts them up again through the delightful proclamation of the grace and favor of God won through Christ's merit. In regard to the disclosure of sin, the veil of Moses, which was referred to in 2 Corinthians three thirteen through 16 hangs in front of the eyes of all people as long as they only hear the preaching of the law and nothing of Christ. And thus they never learn to recognize the true nature of their sin from the law. Instead, they become, they either become presumptuous hypocrites like the Pharisees or they despair like Judas. Therefore, Christ takes the law in his hands and he interprets it spiritually. Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Romans 7, 14, Romans 1, 18. Thus God's wrath in all of its enormity is revealed from heaven upon all sinners 
through this revelation, they are directed to the law, and only then do they learn properly to recognize their sin through the law. Moses would never have been able to wring this acknowledgement out of them. Therefore, it is true that the proclamation of the suffering and the death of Christ, God's Son, is a sobering and terrifying proclamation and a testimony of God's wrath. Through it, people now are really led into the law after the veil of Moses is taken away from them so that they now really recognize what great things God demands from us in the law, none of which we can keep. And that we therefore and that we therefore should seek all our righteousness in Christ. Nonetheless, as long as all of this, that is Christ's suffering and death, proclaims God's wrath and terrifies people, it is still not strictly speaking the preaching of the gospel, but the preaching of Moses and the law, and thus an alien work of Christ through which he comes to his proper function, which is the preaching of grace, comforting and making alive. This, strictly speaking, is the preaching of the gospel. Negative thesis, contrary teachings that are to be rejected. Accordingly, we reject and regard it as incorrect and harmful when it is taught that the gospel is, strictly speaking, a proclamation of repentance or retribution and not exclusively a proclamation of grace. For in this way, the gospel is again made into a teaching of the law. The merit of Christ and the Holy Scriptures are then obscured. Christians are robbed of their true comfort, and the door is opened again to papacy. Okay. And here's article number six concerning the third use of the law from the epitome of the formula of Concord. The chief question concerning this controversy, the law has been given to people for three reasons. First, that through it external discipline may be maintained against the unruly and the disobedient. Second, that people may be led through it to a recognition of their sins. Third, after they have been reborn, since nevertheless the flesh still clings to them, that precisely because of the flesh that they may have a sure guide according to which they can orient and conduct their entire life. In this connection, a dispute occurred among a few theologians over the third use of the law. It concerned whether the law is to be urged upon the reborn Christians or not. One party said yes, the other party said no. So this whole third use controversy is whether or not, uh, whether the law is to be urged upon people who are born-again Christians, okay? There are some who say yes, some who say no. Let's see what the Lutheran confessions say on this. The affirmative thesis, the correct Christian teaching concerning this controversy. We believe, teach, and confess that although people who have true, who truly believe in Christ and are genuinely converted to God have been liberated and set free from the curse and compulsion of the law through Christ, they indeed are not for that reason without the law. Instead, they have been redeemed by the Son of God so that they may practice the law daily it, it, it will practice the law day and night, as Psalm 119.1 says. For our first parents did not live without the law even before the fall. This law of God was written into the heart, for they were created in the image of God. We believe, teach, and confess that the proclamation of the law is to be diligently impressed not only upon unbelievers and the unrepentant, but also upon those who believe in Christ and are truly converted reborn and justified through faith. For even if they are reborn and renewed in the spirit of their minds, as Ephesians 4.23 says, 
this rebirth and renewal is not perfect in this world. Instead, it has only begun. Believers are engaged with the spirit of their minds in continual battle against the flesh, that is, against the perverted nature and character which clings to us until death, and which, because of the old creature, is still lodged in the human understanding, will, and all human powers. In order that people do not resolve to perform service to God on the basis of their pious imaginations or in an arbitrary way of their own choosing, it is necessary for the law of God constantly to light their way. Likewise, it is necessary so that the old creature not act according to its own will, but instead be compelled against its own will, not only through the admonition and threats of the law, but also with punishments and plagues to follow the Spirit and let itself be made captive. Concerning the difference between the works of the law and the fruits of the Spirit, we believe, teach, and confess that the works performed according to the law remain works of the law and should so be called as long as they are coerced out of the people only through the pressure of punishment and the threat of God's wrath. The fruits of the Spirit, however, are the works that the Spirit of God who dwells in believers affects through the reborn. They are done by believers insofar as they are reborn, as if they knew of no command, threat, or reward. In this manner, the children of God live and walk, uh, live in the law and walk according to the law of God what St. Paul in his epistle calls the law of Christ and the law of the mind, yet they are not under the law but under grace. Therefore, for both the repentant and the unrepentant, for the reborn and those not reborn, the law is and remains one single law, the unchangeable will of God. In terms of obedience to it, there is a difference only in that those who are not yet reborn do what the law demands unwillingly because they are coerced, as it is also the case with the reborn with respect to the flesh. Believers, however, do do without coercion, with a willing spirit insofar as they are reborn anew, what no threat of the law could ever force from them. Now, here's the contrary teaching, the negative thesis. Therefore, we reject as contrary teaching and error, which harm Christian discipline and true uh, piety, uh, the teaching that the law should be preached in a way and extent described above only among unbelievers, non-Christians, and the unrepentant, and not among Christians and those who truly believe in Christ. Yeah, they, the other end is a, is a form of antinomianism. So there you have uh, what the Lutheran confessions say on this matter. And so, now, you know, the idea here is this. The, the issues that Frank Turk has brought up, they're not new. This is, these are perennial questions. These are perennial issues. And over and again, we need to go back to the Scriptures. But on top of that, I think it is very useful and very helpful to look at how these issues have been addressed and dealt with biblically by Christians in the past. And, you know, when you look back across his, Christian history, you see that this is an issue that gets brought up over and over and over and over again. And thankfully, for, for somebody like myself who is a Lutheran, I don't have to invent the solution. I go to the confessions of the Lutheran Church, which are 
good, faithful summaries of what the Bible teaches on this. And I see how these controversies, first of all, what the controversy was and how they were resolved. And I see that historically this has been addressed before. And the solution is very simple. And it's what I read to you. All right, we're up on our first break. In fact, we're running a little bit late. When we get back, um, oh, man, do I want to? Yeah, I have to make a decision during the break <laughs> what we're going to go to uh, next because, uh, you know, I'm running a little bit long. But, you know, I think I probably can go a little bit long because Pastor Charmley's sermon, I'm not going to be interrupting it much. So uh, we'll get everything in. Don't worry. If you'd like to email me regarding every, anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, 
you're being catechized into the historic Christian faith. Not the Christian faith that was banged out on somebody's word processor last week. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then forward that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Ah. Now, what, what are we going to move on to next? What I want to do right now, actually, uh, now that I think about it, is, um, as I promised, we're going to have time to get to everything today. And the reason why is because uh, we're doing a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon. And in case you haven't noticed, when I review Pastor Charmley sermons, I don't generally correct him. Yeah, no. I, you don't find me sitting there going, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, that's not what the... Te- no, I don't have to do that. So... Uh, <laughs> I realize I have a little bit more time than I normally do. That being the case, uh, it's let's uh, keeping in the theme that we've started with here. From the Christian Post, headline reads: Two ways to realize radical obedience by Tulian Tavidian. Um, this is in this kind of in the same vein. This one has to deal with his response to Jason Hood, or at least in the controversy itself. Here's what Tulian writes. He says, because the Bible has so much to say about it, healthy Christian people have always maintained a deep concern for the pursuit of holiness and the practice of godliness. Obedience to God matters to God, and it should therefore matter to God's people. In fact, one way to gauge our love for God's for God is obedience to his commands. See John chapter 14, verse uh, 15, or 1 John 5, 3. Where there is a profession of Christ without a practice of Christ-likeness, concern is warranted. Now, i gotta, I got to take one little beef here with uh, Tullian Tavigian, and that is this, is that I think the phrase Christ-likeness is really vague. I, I think that it is, it is fraught with subjective interpretation. And I like what the Lutheran confessions do in pointing out the fact that the law of God used properly for Christians— makes it so that there's no there's no subjectivity needed. It provides us a, a, a basically a roadmap and lets us know what God's will is for our lives. And as a Christian, when I look at the law, it I, I don't look at it as thundering at me. I look at it as giving me, basically showing me what God's will is for me to do. And God's will for me is to to be honest, to love God, to uh, to attend church every week, to be faithful to my wife, to not covet what my neighbor had. That's this is what God's will is for me, and I don't have to in subjectively determine what God's will is. Instead, I, I can objectively look at that, and then I can look at, at cross references in in the uh, in the imperatives in the New Testament, and even in the subjunctives in the New Testament that basically say, okay, no no subjective interpretation necessary. So when I hear people talk about um uh you know practicing Christ likeness yeah i think that that's way too loose of a term i know that it sounds really pious but i think it's way too loose it's cuz 
um, you know, people will sit there and say, oh, well, I'm being Christ-like, and what they mean is that they're being a pacifist. Or I'm being Christ-like, and what they mean by that is the social gospel. And, uh, and you know, so when you look at the red-letter Christians, the red-letter liberals, uh, the emergence and guys like that, they, they claim that they're, they're all being Christ-like. And um, and and these are some of these folks. They they flat out attack uh, God's moral law, and so I think Christ likeness as 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 much as much as people use it, I don't think it's as useful as a term as many of these people think. Just had to put that those two cents in. Anyway, we continue. So the issue is not whether obedience or the pursuit of holiness uh, is. So the issue is not whether obedience, the pursuit of holiness, and the practice of godliness is important. Well, of course it is. The issue is how do we keep God's commands? That's yeah, kind of the issue, isn't it? That's the twenty-four million dollar question. What stimulates and sustains a long obedience in the same direction? Where does the power come from to do God's will and to follow God's lead? Our answer to these questions is determined by our understanding of the distinctive role of God's law and gospel in the life of a Christian. Therefore, it is crucial that we get this right biblically and theologically. I couldn't agree more. When John or Jesus talks about keeping God's commands as a way to know whether you love Jesus or not, he's not using the law as a way to motivate. He's simply stating a fact. Those who love God will keep on keeping his commands. As every parent and teacher knows, behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be shallow and short-lived. But shallow and short-lived is not what God wants. That's not what it means to keep God's commands. God wants a sustained obedience from the heart. How is that possible? Long-term sustained obedience can only come from the grace which flows from what Jesus has already done not guilt or fear of what we must do. To paraphrase Ray Ortland, any obedience not grounded in or motivated by the gospel is unsustainable. Or as I like to put it, imperatives minus indicatives equal impossibilities. As a pastor, one of my responsibilities is to disciple people into a deeper understanding of obedience of obedience, teaching them to say no to the things God hates and yes to the things God loves. But all too often I have wrongly concluded that the only way to keep licentious people in line is to give them more rules, lay down the law. The fact is, however, that the only way licentious people start to obey is when they get a taste of God's radical, unconditional acceptance of sinners. As Mike Horton points out here in Romans 6, 1-4, through 4, the Apostle Paul answers antinomianism, or lawlessness, not with more law, but with more gospel. In other words, licentious people aren't those who believe the gospel of God's free grace, uh, of God's free grace too much, but too little. The ultimate antidote to antinomianism, writes Horton, is not more imperatives, but the realization that the gospel swallows the tyranny as well as the guilt of sin. The irony, in other words, of gospel-based sanctification is that those who end up obeying more are those who increasingly realize that their standing with God is not based upon their obedience, but upon Christ's obedience. Writing in response to Jason Hood's recent Christianity Today article, Hood voices concern about the lack of emphasis on personal holiness and radical obedience in this generation of Christians. My friend Dane Ortland, read Dane's full gospel-drenched response here, shows how there are two ways to address this. 
Here's what Dane writes. He says, One way is to balance gospel grace with exhortations to holiness, as if both need equal airtime lest we fall into legalism on one side, neglect grace or antinomianism on the other side. The other way, which I believe is the right and biblical way, is so is to so startle this restraint-free culture with the gospel of free justification that the functional justifications of human approval, moral performance, and sexual indulgence or big bank accounts begin to lose their vice grip on human hearts and their emptiness is exposed in all of its fraudulence. It sounds backward. But the path to holiness is through, not beyond, the grace of the gospel, because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform the heart. The solution to restraint-free immorality is not morality. The solution to immorality is the free grace of God's grace, so free that it will be misheard by some as a license to sin with impunity. The route by which the New Testament exhorts radical obedience is not by tempering grace, but by driving it home all the more deeply. Let's pursue holiness. Without it, we won't see God. Let's pursue it centrally through enjoying the gospel, the same gospel that got us in and the same gospel that liberates us afresh each day. The heart of sanctification is the life which feeds upon justification. Amen. Now, to some, this will sound like antinomianism, a lawless, obligation-free version of Christianity, a cop-out. After all, doesn't the American church need to be shaken out of its comfort zone? Yes, but you don't do it by giving them law. You do it, as Dane points out, by giving them gospel. The Apostle Paul never uses the law as a way to motivate obedience. He always uses the gospel. Paul always soaks the obligations of the law in the declarations of the gospel because God is not concerned with just any kind of obedience. He's concerned with a certain kind of obedience, as Cain and Abel's sacrifice illustrates. What motivates our obedience determines whether or not it is a sacrifice of praise. The obedience that God that pleases God is obedience that flows from faith and grace, not from fear and guilt. Now hear me. The law of God has its right, rightful place in the life of a Christian. The law is a gift from God. It's good. It graciously shows Christians what God commands and instructs us in the way of holiness. But nowhere does the Bible say that the law possesses the power to enable us to do what it says. You could put it this way. The law guides, but it does not give. The law shows us what a sanctified life looks like and plots out our course, but it does not have any sanctifying power. The law cannot change a human heart. As John Bunyan memorably put it, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. To say, however, that the law has no power to change us is in no way, in no way reduces its ongoing role in the life of the Christian. We just have to understand the precise role that it plays for us today. The law serves us by making us thankful for Jesus when we break it, and it serves us by showing how to love God and others. Only the gospel empowers us to keep the law, 
And when we fail to keep it, the gospel comforts by reminding us that God's infinite approval does not depend on our keeping of the law, but Christ's keeping of the law on our behalf. The gospel serves the Christian every day and in every way by reminding us that God's love for us does not get bigger when we obey or smaller when we disobey. And guess what? This makes me want to obey him more, not less. As Spurgeon once wrote, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Therefore, it's the gospel, what Jesus has done, that alone can give God-honoring animation to our obedience. The power to obey comes from being moved and motivated by the completed work of Jesus for us. The fuel to do good flows from what's already been done. So while the law directs us, only the gospel can drive us. A friend of mine recently put it to me this way. The law is like a set of railroad tracks. The tracks provide no power for the train, but the train must stay on the tracks in order to function. The law never gives any power to do what it commands. Only the gospel has the power, as it were, to move the train. Recognizing the continual need of the gospel for Christian people as much as the initial need of the gospel for non-Christian people, J. Gresham Machen wrote, quote, What I need, first of all, is not exhortation but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. The gospel of amazing grace gets us in, it keeps us in, and will eventually get us to the finish line. It's all grace. Now go and spread this defiant, scandalously liberating, counterintuitive word around the world. The world is waiting. Wow. Great article by Tulian, and I think that gets at the heart of the matter. It, you know, it seems like I've been talking about this for a week now, and I think maybe I have. But I'm glad that I have because I think this is one of those topics that needs to be looked at from multiple different directions so that we properly understand the role of the law and the gospel, even for we Christians. Moving along. That means one thing, and one thing only. It's time for an update from the Patricia King gang. Now, ask the question, do you know who you are? Well, I, you know, apparently, you, you know, it's possible for you to not know who you am, who you is. <laughs> Here's Patricia King asking the question, who are you anyway? <clears throat> who are you anyway? Have you ever wondered who you were? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, funny that you would ask. Hang on a second here. I'm pulling out my driver's license. I, you know, I've one, been wondering who I am. Okay, this, my driver's license says that my name is Christopher Roseboro. Yeah, that's what my, it says right here on my... Uh, <clears throat> Have you ever had a problem with uh, defining your identity and your purpose in life? I was... Uh, what? watching a show just a little while ago and and uh, there was a a girl who had lived through a lot of trauma in her life and she was being interrogated by a police officer and they said who are you and she went silent and then she said i am nobody and 
when she said that, it just pierced my heart. I thought, how could anyone think that they are nobody? And she went on, you know, as the program went on, we uh, came to discover that this girl who thought she was a nobody, at least that's that's what she felt about herself inside, had, had things happen in her life that had challenged her identity and that had hurt her and wounded her. And so she grew up believing that she had no purpose and no destiny. I want to say that no matter what you've been through, no matter what has happened to you in the past... No- okay, now I want to know, what's the problem? Somebody who has no purpose and no destiny... This sounds like the uh, uh, the issues that are brought up by existentialism. Is this the central message of Christianity? So that you can know your purpose and destiny? You know, it, here's the deal. This is the kind of message that hooks people in. This has nothing to do with repentance and the forgiveness of sins and what Christ has done for us on the cross. No matter how people have treated you, no matter how bad life has gone, that you... You are created with purpose and that you are a somebody. You are a somebody with worth, with value, with purpose. You are beautiful in every way. There are, are things about you that... that Man, I mean, whew, talk about inflating my ego. Thanks, you know. Although I, um, I kind of grew past the beautiful stage a long time ago. Now I'm just um, old and graying... And uh, the beauty part about, you know, the handsomeness part about me, yeah, it's kind of slipping away too. That can't be replicated in anyone else. You are that special. There is no- Oh, wow. I'm so glad I'm special. No one like you. I know. I know. It's true. <sighs> As you draw close to God, you will find out more about who you are. The word will tell you who you are. The word will reveal your destiny purpose to you. Yeah, the world, the word will reveal my destiny purpose. You know, it's funny. The word reveals that, well, I'm a sinner. And not just because I commit sins, but I'm a sinner by nature. Hmm. And then as far as destiny purpose is concerned, well, you know, it does talk about Christ returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. And some people have a destiny purpose of... Well, sadly, they go to hell. I don't know if that's really what God wants them because it, to do because it says in the Bible that it's not God's will that any should perish. It's kind of tragic that any do. Um, and then, you know, and then, uh, hmm. The Lord, as you draw close to him, will, will bring alive in you um, the purpose for which you were created. He will highlight different gifts and motivations that, that make you unique. Right. You know, what was, uh, you know, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, how, you know, Lazarus was poor and sick and so sick that he had sores on his body and the dogs licked the sores and, and then he died. Yeah. And, but the, he went to heaven. See, and then the the other guy who had a really nice big destiny purpose here on earth, uh, the rich man who doesn't even get a name, um, you know, uh, he had, you know, he had, he was rich and wealthy and dressed well and ate well. Um, he had a destiny purpose here in life and then he went to hell. Um, what what again was uh, Lazarus's destiny purpose? Um, can you help me with that one? Why don't you draw close to him today? Why don't you ask him what your purpose in life is? 
Why don't you ask him to, to open doors that will allow you to walk in and fulfill your destiny purpose? Yeah. Um, can you give me examples in the Bible of people praying to God to give them their destiny purpose? Yeah, do you have any examples of that, Patricia? Because if that is your desire, nothing can stop it. You Oh, I see. Because if it's that's my desire to have my destiny purpose, then nothing can stop it. Destiny, destiny, no escaping that for me. Okay. And God together will see that you'll become everything that you were called to be. When you flow with him, when you walk with him, when you when when notice the law. You engage with him. You will come into the fullness of what you were created for. Yes, you. Wow. Wow. Even me. Okay, cool. You are called with a destiny purpose. Uh, again, um, what about those folks who like live in poverty-stricken nations or nations that are run by corrupt governments? I mean, they're Christians and all. And you know, what about the the Christians? Was it their destiny to be eaten by lions under the persecution of Nero? I mean, what if God's destiny purpose is for me to be fed to lions? You know, that doesn't sound like, you know, maybe I would prefer he didn't reveal that to me. You are called to be. You are not a nobody. You are a somebody, a very, very special somebody. Well, thank you. I appreciate you telling me that I'm a special somebody. Yeah, the reality is there's probably a lot of folks out there who think, oh, Patricia, stop it. Chris doesn't need to know that. I mean, he's just an arrogant jerk anyway, and now you're just making his ego bigger. I want to pray right now for those of you who have felt like you just fade away in the background, that you don't really have a purpose, that you're not— So this is the wallflower prayer offered by uh, um, Patricia King for the purposeless wallflowers out there. Really adding anything to life, and that you've actually been questioning your purpose— I want to pray for you because as... When did Patricia King become purpose-driven? You know, just... Of today, after this prayer, things will change. Right on, because you because know, why, why will they change again? Father, I pray for my... Oh, man. Hard to watch. My friends who, who feel like they have no worth, no value, no purpose. And I pray that you would... Inv- you pray for your friends... Do you really truly have a friendship with uh, somebody that is just watching this video, Patricia? You know, just asking. Vade that mindset right now and show them, God, that they have great purpose in you, that you have called them to be to be expressions of of you, that you have called them to be lovers of you and lovers of others, and that you would fill them today, Lord, with a with a purpose call, Lord, with an excitement within. So uh, fill them with a purpose call. Can you give me an example of somebody praying something like this anywhere in the Bible, please? Them that says, yes, I, I am unique and I'm created to express the glory. Yes, I'm unique and I'm created to express... Um, wow. Uh, could you imagine a, an unbeliever seeing this video and going, oh, well, that's the God for me. Wow, the God who wants to give me a purpose, who thinks I'm special, who thinks I'm unique. Uh, have they heard anything about their sinfulness, their need of a Savior, the wrath of God? No, 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 they, they haven't, have they? No, they've just heard how wonderful they are rather than how sinful they are. Yeah, this is really seductive. I, I wonder if this is not the epitome of what it means to scratch itching ears uh, vis-a-vis 2 Timothy chapter 4, you know. 
glory of God, and no one can express it like me. Lord, fortify them right now and bring your purposes to pass in them. In Jesus' name. Now, I want you to rise up with joy in your heart and say, yes, I'm an overcomer in Christ and I'm created with a purpose and I'm going to spend the rest of my life discovering what that is. I'm going to be on a pursuit. It doesn't matter what's happened to me in the past. I am created for destiny. I Really? You, you remember that uh, Alanis Morissette song, uh, Isn't It Ironic? You know, I just what if you discover your your uh, your destiny purpose? I mean, here, you know, you, you, your friend Patricia King prays for you to have your destiny purpose. And as soon as you figure it out, you have a heart attack. You know, it's like winning the lottery and then dying the next day. Um, <clears throat> isn't that how the lyrics go? Um, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's it's a black cloud. And, you know, yeah, you know what I'm saying. I have a tool that might help you. It's found in our bookstore and it's called the decree book. What it is is a yeah. It's not the Bible. Just the, the decree book. You know, go buy the decree book at um, Patricia King's website, and then you can just decree your destiny for yourself. You know, what do you what do you want to be? Do you want to be the queen of Sheba? No problemo. You just decree it. Do you want to be the uh, the the crown prince of uh, Slaburbia? I don't know where Slaburbia is, but you that's what you want to be. That that's what you think your destiny purpose is. No problemo. I'm sure in the decree book they have a way for you to decree, decree yourself to be the crown prince of Slaburbia. Even if you're a girl, I don't know how that happens, but you know. Book of decrees that decree over your life who you are in Christ and what you have in him. You see the word, the Bible is the final authority about who you are. And if you will make those decrees every single day, you will decree the truth about who God made you to be. Now, no one can express it the way you do. No one can express the attributes of God. So I'm supposed to decree the truth about myself. Well, I do that all the time. Okay, and here's what I, because here's what I've learned to decree about myself. That I am by nature sinful and unclean that I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by the things I've done, by the things I've left undone. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I haven't loved God with all of my heart. As a result, I mean, this is, this is what I confess about myself, and this is truly what God's word reveals about me. Rather than I'm special and I'm unique and, oh, I'm a one of a kind. Yeah, I might be that, that's for sure. But that that actually may be a problem, not a good thing. Um... Hmm. Although, you know, I've got to tell you, the being the crown prince of Slaburbia, hmm, I just might want to decree that. way that you do, but it will give you a foundation on which to stand. It's called the decree book. We also have a decree CD where you can put it on. Say, you get the, the, the decree CD, great. And, and let the decrees be proclaimed over you. Those decrees on the CD are not exactly the same as the decrees in the book. Yeah, so you got to make sure that you get both the book and the CD so that you can get the complete decrees, you know, set. They, these are collector decrees, by the way. You know, and th- these decrees that are offered right now in the early part of 2011, they might, may not be the same decrees that are offered, you know, later in the year or next year. So be sure to collect all your decrees. I mean, these are collector's items. You don't want to miss these decrees. Oh, Let's continue. Decrees in the book. You can decree over yourself if you decree the, the, the decrees in the book. But when you put on the decree CD, I decree over you. Oh, boy. 
You know, I should probably come up with my own decree CD, you know, to decree things over Patricia King. So, I mean, since, you know, I, I feel that this would be a good service to her. You know, maybe I can decree things like, I decree that um, Patricia King is going to come to her senses, repent of her false doctrine, and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that she will no longer preach this false doctrine, that she'll abandon all of these false books, her dreams and visions and all that kind of nonsense, and actually properly handle God's Word. I decree that. You think I should decree that? I should do my own decree CD for Patricia King. And Heather Clark, who has created songs of decree over you, you can just soak in it and let those decrees go deep. So, so you can soak in a decree like you would like you know, a warm bubble bath. So they have soaking decrees. Do your fingers prune up when you soak in a decree? You know, I'm just curious about that. It'll help you define who you are. We even have the yeah, de- I already know who I am. I just look on my driver's license. If I forget, I look at the driver's license. It tells me. It even tells me where I live. Isn't that cool? Decree for kids. If you have children, that you want them to know who they are and what their destiny purpose is. And they can just soak under it. Go to sleep with it. In fact, many... Oh, no. Now you can brainwash your children with Patricia King's decree CD for children. Adults like soaking under that decree for kids. If you've been traumatized as a child, if you've gone through a lot or maybe abused or whatever, and you were stifled not knowing who you really are or what your value is because of what's happened to you in childhood. I w- you know, I think about it. You know, traumatized as a child. I, I one time went to a circus and I thought the clowns were a little scary. Does that, does that qualify as being traumatized as a child? I would highly recommend getting Decree for Kids and soaking under it even as an adult. It'll heal the child in you and it'll, it'll surface in you. What? It'll heal the child in me? Oh, no. Who you really are and what you are made to be. God bless you. And remember this. God loves you with an everlasting love. He really, really does. That's cool because I love me too. Thanks, Patricia. (laughs) Oh, boy. (sighs) Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to pause right there and I am going to uh, take a break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Good sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on the other side of this break. Witching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. It's been a while since I've done a bad sermon. Well, well, did I do a bad sermon on Friday? I forget. Yeah, I did. Haven't done a lot of bad sermon reviews lately. Got one more good one, though. And then we'll do some more bad ones. Cleaning the filter out for the most part. You know what I mean? Got to do that from time to time. All right, let's uh, cue up the uh, sermon review music. Good, the bad, and uh, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. As promised, here is the balance of two very good sermons from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. This is the second installment uh, in the uh, series entitled The Messiah and the Tyrant. The Messiah and the Tyrant. This is from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, Bethel Evangelical Free Church in the United Kingdom, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent. The text that forms the basis of the sermon is taken from 1 Samuel and chapter 22. I think that's the way he says it. He says, 1 Samuel and chapter 22. It might be a British thing. Regardless, it's a great sermon. It's a fantastic sermon. Oh, man. Is it, uh, let me just kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Charmley. I, he, the, the guy doesn't need much of, a, of an intro. I mean, this is just good stuff. Here we go. Your reading is found in the first book of the prophet Samuel and chapter 22. First Samuel chapter 22. And we are... Picking up the story immediately after David's escape from Gath, where he had hoped hoped to hide himself out as a mercenary and had been captured and was in danger of his life, and so he pretended to be insane. So, 1 Samuel and chapter 22. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. He said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab. And they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Perak. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There is not one of you who is sorry for me, or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Himelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes out at your bidding, and is honourable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, or any to the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and smite the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests, and killed on that day eighty-five men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. 
but with me you shall be safe. We trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his holy and precious word. Now this book of First Samuel is about kingdoms and about kings. In fact it's a book about two kings. King Saul and King David. It is about God's chosen kings. And the one who failed and fell. And the one who by the grace of God stood. And did not rebel against God as his king. Now this is not to say that David is a perfect man. Far from it, he's a man like us, a sinner. But a man who did not rebel against God as king. Who did not try to set himself up in God's place. And we have in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel these contrasting pictures of the two kings David on the one hand on the run an outlaw and on the other hand Saul in power but not in control and our text is found in verse 2 of the chapter everyone who was in distress everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, that is to David. Everyone who was discontented gathered to David. We have these two kings. The one is a king who is a rebel against God, who is man setting himself up in the place of God, that is King Saul. And the other is God's king, waiting God's time, obedient, and therefore suffering and persecuted. This is a chapter in which we see, first of all, persecution. Secondly, we see paranoia. And thirdly, we have the priests of God. So we have persecution, we have paranoia, and we have priests. David had, in the the previous chapter, run away because Saul sought his life. And yet, David had done nothing wrong. God had anointed David to be the king of Israel in Saul's place. But unlike Jehu, who appears later on in the books of the kings, who was anointed king over Israel by Elisha, David did not immediately say, I've been anointed king, it is therefore my duty and my responsibility to go out and lead a military coup. But instead David says, it is my place to wait for God to do what God is going to do. And so we see David hated and opposed, finding refuge at the beginning of this chapter. He had failed at the end of chapter 21 to find refuge because he sought refuge by his own wisdom. But now he escaped to the cave of Adullam 
We don't know exactly where this was, but it seems to have been a system of caves. And his family were forced to flee as well. This is a refuge provided by God. After all, a cave is a natural occurrence. God had created these caves for David to hide in. God had given him the refuge. And the only refuges in this world that will ever, ever provide a true refuge for God's people are the refuges God has made. And we have sung that last hymn, Blessed Rock of Ages. We speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as the refuge. He is the one to whom we go. He is the one who says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is only one refuge that will last when this old world is burned up, the second coming of Christ, and that is the Lord himself. The name of the Lord, says the, the proverb, is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and are safe. It is only in Christ that we have refuge. God is our refuge and our strength. And there is no other refuge that we can possibly have. All human refuges fail. You see, David thought that he would find refuge if he went to Gath and hide himself out as a mercenary, but instead he barely escaped with his life and had to pretend to be a lunatic. Oh, we sing that hymn of Mr. Wesley's other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. And that is the Christian experience. I have no other refuge. God would have us give up all other refuge and say, Christ alone is our refuge. In him I trust. Because he alone will not put to shame. If you travel up and down this country, you can see the ruins of many castles and fortresses that were destroyed in the English Civil War. And many of them, they were seen as refuges by the men on whatever side. Both sides besieged castles. The men who found refuge in the castles thought that they had safety. But these buildings had been built long before gunpowder. Proved helpless to cannon. They were not Many of them are refuges, and people were trapped and destroyed as a result. But Christ is a strong refuge, and no one, no one can take God's people out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see David here as a refuge. Not only does David find refuge, but he in turn becomes a refuge as God's king, the one to whom the people come. Saul had become a tyrant. We see him later on in the chapter. On verse 7 he says to the, the Benjamites, his followers, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Now, God had divided 
the land of Israel. You will find at the, at the conquest under Joshua, God divided by lot the land, and every family was given their land by God. Therefore, for King Saul to give land to his followers, he would have to take it from other people. He was not expanding the borders of the land. He was taking land within Israel from the people to whom it belonged and giving it to his cronies, his followers. He had become a tyrant. He was levying taxes on people, oppressing the people, and so there were those who lost everything and who fled to David, to God's king. Now we, and all mankind, are under a tyrant. The Apostle Paul gives this great picture of the tyrant that is sin, human sin. The wages of sin, he tells us, is death. Here you have a tyrant that is compelling men to serve him. And yet men have entered willingly into his service. There is nobody, no one outside of the people of God who was forced to sin. Men willingly chose this service and yet you see men toiling under it. Because you see the tyrant offers good terms. The tyrant says, serve me, and I will give you your heart's desire. Sin says to its followers, will the son of Jesse, will Christ give you fields and vineyards and make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Will Got to pause right there. Notice how he's tying in Jesus with the son of Jesse. Brilliantly done. Christ says sin really give you satisfaction in life. And sin says no, he will not. But I will give you satisfaction. And so, so the, the young soul says yes, I will follow after this. Benefactor who has appeared. This one who offers to give pleasure and joy in life. There are the pleasures of sin. That is a biblical expression. Moses, we read, refused to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And you see, that is the problem. The pleasures of sin are only for a season, for a little time. There is pleasure in sin. People wouldn't do it if there was no pleasure in it. But that pleasure is not a lasting pleasure. It is a pleasure that is easily extinguished. And you see the devotee of wickedness, whatever that wickedness may be, enslaved to it. And yet the tyrant says, you have entered my service and you cannot go. And he, ta- and he takes everything. And the wages of sin, the wage that the tyrant will pay, all those who have signed up under his banner, is death. 
eternal everlasting damnation is what sin will give his servants for he is a wicked tyrant and yet all mankind has fallen into his trap and cannot get free we cannot free ourselves there must be a saviour and God must give the saviour and yet you see in the time of the prophet David did not lead a rebellion because he said my kingdom is coming my kingdom is not yet there is a sense in which his kingdom is there here is the leader with his army the 400 men under David the kingdom has begun with a little number in the midst of a hostile world but their day is coming when the kingdom will be complete when David will be seated upon his throne ah the Lord Jesus Christ says occupy until I come to his servants even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father and yet he is as we have sung the king who is coming to reign we Christians are in the midst of a hostile world God's people are in the midst of a world of people who are not believers who are hostile I send you forth says the Lord Jesus as sheep in the midst of wolves and his kingdom is depicted as a, a little stone that grows into a vast mountain his kingdom is coming the king is coming to reign and in the meantime his people are not seeking to overthrow this wicked world we cannot bring the kingdom in by force we cannot bring the kingdom in by politics Christ must bring the kingdom in himself it is God's time it is when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven that the kingdom will fully come and not before and yet the kingdom is beginning here on earth and in the meantime we live for Christ we look to him and we find refuge in him and we know this that he is coming to deliver and to put an end to take away transgression and rule inequity as Mr Montgomery puts it in the hymn so we have persecution of the kingdom we have the kingdom of Christ in the midst of the wicked world but then we have paranoia here is the, the king of this world here is Saul one of the great tragic figures of history is King Saul the man who started out so well and yet he brought utter ruin upon himself he is tragic not because he's a victim of circumstance but because he destroyed himself he is like Shakespeare's Macbeth the king who seized power and whose tyranny and murder and violence lead to his own destruction but of course Shakespeare's Macbeth is a character of fiction Saul is a real man 
A man who started out so well and yet ended in utter destruction. And how did he do it? He did it by seeking his own glory, his own power, his own pleasure. And that is sin, you see. It is man trying to glorify himself. The first temptation our parents, our first parents gave into was this. Take and eat of the fruit, said Satan, and you will be as gods. And you will not need your creator, God, anymore. And that is the great temptation of sin. Now there are those who are quite honest and open about it. And who say, yes, we want to do away with God. And there are others who do not even think about that, but yet man, sin is their sin is man trying to be his own God. It is man saying, I will ascend unto heaven, and I will sit upon the throne of the Most High. And man says, I will be God. And what is the result of all of this? What is the result of King Saul saying, I will no longer be God's vassal king and sit upon a throne by his side, but I will sit upon God's own throne. It is this ruined man, dejected, paranoid, there is not one of you who is sorry for me he says there is not one of you who is sorry for me you should feel sorry for me he says is that the words are those the words of a great king or are they the words of a lost friendless dejected man a man whose dreams of greatness have turned to dust and ashes in his mouth. He is the great king. Oh, he is sitting upon his throne in the open air in this great eastern scene of the king's court and he is feeling sorry for himself. And Saul speaks of the, the son of Jesse. And he speaks to Ahimelech as son of Ahitub. Now in the ancient world, they didn't have surnames. You referred in place of a surname to somebody's father's name. He does not say David. He does not say Achimelech. Because he's on first, names ter first name terms with nobody. He is a man without friends. A man in the midst of his glory, isolated. Here is sin, you see, man says, I will become greater than God and become less than a man. This is a tragedy of sin. Even in this life, it impoverishes and shrivels the soul. Man seeking to live for himself alone is a terrible thing, and yet a thing worthy of pity. In the last days of the Third Reich, Hitler was a pathetic creature, quivering in his bunker, filled with fear and terror. Why? 
there is a man who glorified himself. The man who, of whom the German children sang, Hitler is our saviour, Hitler is our lord. There is the lord and saviour of, but a man makes himself a trembling, pathetic creature. C.S. Lewis in one of his books pictures hell as street upon street of houses. In this allegory, street upon street of terraced houses, and each street for miles and miles and miles is totally unoccupied. Here and there, totally isolated one from another, is a house that has one man living in it. One man who can so little stand other men that he isolates himself. That is what sin does. It isolates man. We were made for fellowship with God. We were made for fellowship. But sin makes men isolated and lonely. We have great technology today. Men can talk with others across the globe. And men have never felt more alone. The technology that allows us to communicate isolates. And here is, here is Saul cut off from God and man. And it's all his own fault because he said, I will be the supreme king. And what is he? He is nothing. Man without God is nothing. And then we see the priests. This tyrant in his paranoia says, bring mean news of David and Doeg the Edomite brings news that David has gone to the priests so the priest, the high priest is called and Saul proceeds to interrogate him and the, but Saul does not want an answer he wants to execute the priests And so he says, cut them all off, kill them all. Oh, what a terrible thing it is. Because you see, Saul was, was rejected by God. Because he refused to destroy the Lord's enemies. In chapter 15 of this book, Saul was commanded to kill the Amalekites. And destroy everything they had. Instead of which he spared the Amalekite king and the best of the animals for his own glory and praise and now he who would not wipe out the enemies of God seeks to wipe out the servants of God the priests of the Lord his paranoia leads this terrible atrocity human sin leads to human sin Sin begets sin begets sin. And man who seeks to glorify himself hates God. You look at these new atheists, Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and so on. And you hear them speak, you do not hear people who, in a detached academic manner, 
do not believe that there is a God. You hear people who hate God. I do not believe God exists as the atheist, and I hate him. And the reason, you see, the reason why man hates God is because man would like to be God. The sinner, the unrepentant sinner, the man who wallows in sin, the man who wallows in sin, hates God. And the terrible thing is this. The priests of God were the intercessors. These are the very people who could speak to God on behalf of Saul. These are the people who brought sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And Saul says, kill them all. And further cuts himself off from God. And by each act, he goes further and further from God. Until finally he has confirmed himself in damnation and condemnation. It is possible for somebody to so set themselves against God. That they go from crime to crime, from sin to sin, and condemn themselves. The Pharisees who committed the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, did not do it all at once. But they saw Christ doing his mighty works, and they rejected him, and they rejected him, and they rejected him, and they rejected him, and, they rejected him, and finally... Finally, they said he is possessed by a demon. And then, attributing with their eyes wide open the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan, they committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. And they were lost. And here is Saul, instead of seeking God, Instead of coming to him in repentance, God is willing to forgive. Christ says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Christ does not turn away any who come to him. He says, come unto me. He says, the arms of love are open to receive. What is the problem? What is the problem with those who go down into the pit. Is this? You would not come to me. You did not want to come to me that you may have eternal life. He says, Come, but Saul, those he represents, would rather silence the voice of the preacher. Oh, what a terrible thing it is! When men would silence the voice of God rather than hear it. When God's voice is not crying out to them, you are condemned. And stopping there, but is saying, Turn ye, O turn ye, for why will you die? This is the voice of God. It is turn. It is turn. It is the voice of God's love that we hear. And yet men would silence the voice of God's love. 
And that is what Saul is doing, killing the priests, those who had in their hands the sacrificial system that declared to all mankind, to all who would see the mercy of God, there is a sacrifice, there is an offering, and whoever desires may come to the offering, may come to the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and may take freely from him eternal life. Oh man, this is so good. Notice how this entire text has been brought full circle to play out the very sin and rebellion in our own life and how Jesus is being placarded right before your very eyes and you are being admonished to repent and come and be forgiven. All you who are weary and heavy, like, oh, this is, uh, wow, we're hearing the gospel and we're hearing it done right. We're hearing the law and we're hearing it done right. And know that sin's forgiven and yet men would silence the voice of love and mercy that comes from Calvary. What a terrible thing it is to seek to silence the voice of God's priest, the voice of Christ. But David, we see David confessing to the priest. Now there is only one priest. In one sense, but also there's a sense in which all Christians are priests and therefore we are, we are exhorted to confess our sins to one another. Not to one special man who is a priest, but to one another to seek absolution and forgiveness of sins that can only come from Christ. We are to confess our sins to him first and foremost, and to seek his forgiveness. And if we need to, we may confess to another Christian and hear from our brother, our sister in Christ, the words of the gospel. And our sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. If you feel burdened with a sin that you are not sure has been forgiven, go to another Christian and confess. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. All that is needed is to confess to God in prayer. But sometimes what is needed for the mind is confession to a person. Not in the, the way the Roman Catholics do it, where I must confess in order to be forgiven, but rather I confess to another person for the sake of hearing from them a reminder of what is always true, that God has forgiven the sins of his people. Well put. There's a passage of scripture that talks about the Christians who confess their sins one to another. And even Jesus breathes on the disciples, on the apostles, and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, the sins you forgive on earth are forgiven, the sins you withhold are withheld. 
we've been given the power to declare the forgiveness of sins, and he's right. Many times what we need to hear is that absolution. I'm convinced if pastors would do this, open their offices and make them available not for counseling, but for confession, so that people can hear absolution, there would be a huge decline in people needing to spend money at going and spend time on the couches with their therapists. Because the one thing the therapist can't give you is what somebody who's part of the priesthood of all believers, the Church of Jesus Christ, can give you. And that's the proclamation of the forgiveness of your individual sins. Good job. And sometimes it is necessary for peace of mind to say it to another person. And to say it to somebody who we can trust. To be to us a servant of Christ. David confessed his sins. David had a mediator. He had the priest. He had the priest. That is what we need. We need the priest. The Lord Jesus Christ who has died for us. We need a priest. There is only one. That is Jesus of Nazareth who bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might be forgiven that our sin might be dealt with. He died the just for the unjust to do that most priestly duty to bring us to God. And so we see in the persecution the need for a refuge. And that refuge is Christ who is our refuge from the tyrant of sin. We see in Saul the terrible ravages that sin works upon a man. And we know that we were subjects If you're not a Christian tonight, you are a subject of that tyrant. And the word goes, flee to God's refuge. Flee to the Lord Jesus and he will give you refuge from that tyrant. And we see the priests. We see that great high priest Jesus. And the terrible, terrible error of seeking to get rid of the priest and our great need to come to him and to be forgiven and accepted by him. He is our only refuge, our prophet who tells us the will of God, our priest who intercedes for us, and our king who will deliver us. Oh, let us look to him, to him alone, for he and he alone can deliver, and to him be the glory and the friends forevermore. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I can't add to that. (laughs) Oh, man. Boy, do I need to hear that. Boy, do I need to hear that. That's what it means to preach the gospel to Christians. You know, I recently had, um, I was speaking with uh, a man who, is a pastor and somebody well known in the seeker driven uh, camp who uh, lectures and we were talking and he he asked me straight up he said Chris why is it that Christians need to hear the gospel why are you so insistent that that's the case and I asked him if he'd ever seen the movie Hook and he said yeah I've seen the movie Hook and I said well here's the deal 
I said, there's a, there's a scene in there where Captain Hook decides that he's going to uh, try to make Peter Pan's kids love him. It was a, some harebrained scheme that Smee had come up with. And so he was going to indoctrinate Jack and Maggie, who are Hook's kids, into Hookism, if you would. And Hook's the bad guy. He's evil. And he wants to teach the kids to love him. And so they're conducting school, and uh, and Hook is saying terrible things about Jack and Maggie's parents. Oh, the only reason why they're nice to you is to shut you up. They All they ever want is for peace and quiet and for you kids to not bother them anymore. And Maggie gets incensed and says, that's not true. And so during this indoctrination school into Hookism, uh, Captain Hook tells Smee to flunk Maggie, the maggot. So he gives her a big F on her paper, and she says, an F, an F, and she protests, and they decide to carry her off to get her out of the class because uh, Jack is listening, but Maggie's not. And as they're carrying Maggie away, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, Jack, run home, run home. Neverland makes you forget. Neverland, always remember, Neverland makes you forget. And I said, that's why we need the gospel. Because here on this side of Christ's return, uh, this is the Shadowlands. This is Neverland, if you would. We're the lost children. And Neverland makes you forget. So we always need to hear the story of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And as we read earlier from Tullian Tavigian's uh, wonderful post, that it's the gospel that motivates us to true obedience. And as we read earlier today in the Confessions of the Lutheran Church, found in the epitome of the the, uh, formula of Concord, that the law is to be preached to Christians, and obedience is not something that's brought about via coercion, but instead is a fruit of our repentance and our regeneration and rebirth in Christ. And so it all comes back to Christ and Him crucified, the true King whose story is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 22, as Pastor Charmley so eloquently pointed out. This is the gospel that I need. And it's the gospel that you need. And believe it or not, it's God's love and his mercy that will lead, a, lead you and lead me to repentance so that we do not sin against him. As Spurgeon said, it wasn't God's wrath that motivated him to good works. When we realized how loving and kind his God is, how could he sin against such a loving, kind, and caring God who's done so much for him? That's not manipulation. That's something completely, completely different. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for listening and giving me the opportunity to go off on my little law gospel rants. I do think that they're important. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you see two friendly yellow buttons. Pick one, fill out the information, and support us. We truly could use your help. 
Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.